what most of us know that experience, we call it hope. It's a state of anticipation, and it's crucial for healthy human existence. And it's a really important concept in the Bible. In fact, there are many words for hope in the ancient languages of the Bible, and they're all fascinating. In the Old Testament, there are two main Hebrew words translated as hope. The first is yachal, which means simply to wait for. Like in the story of Noah and the ark, as the floodwaters recede, Noah had to yachal for weeks. The other Hebrew word is kava, which also means to wait. It's related to the Hebrew word kav, which means cord. When you pull a kav tight, you produce a state of tension until there's release. That's kava, the feeling of tension and expectation while you wait for something to happen. The prophet Isaiah depicts God as a farmer who plants vines and kavas for good grapes. Or the prophet Micah talks about farmers who both kava and yachal for morning dew to give moisture to the land. So in biblical Hebrew, hope is about waiting or expectation. But waiting for what? In the period of Israel's prophets, as the nation was sinking into self-destruction, Isaiah said, At this moment, the Lord's hiding his face from Israel, so I will kavah for him. The only hope Isaiah had in those dark days was the hope for God himself. You find this same notion of hope all over the book of Psalms, where these words appear over 40 times. In almost every case, what people are waiting for is God. Like in Psalm 130, the poet cries out from a pit of despair, I kavah for the Lord, let Israel yachal for the Lord, because he's loyal and will redeem Israel from its sins. Biblical hope is based on a person, which makes it different from optimism. Optimism is about choosing to see, in any situation, how circumstances could work out for the best. But biblical hope is not focused on circumstances. In fact, hopeful people in the Bible often recognize there's no evidence things will get better, but you choose hope anyway. Like the prophet Hosea, he lived in a dark time when Israel was being oppressed by foreign empires, and he chose hope when he said God could turn this valley of trouble into a door of hope, like the day when Israel came up from the land of Egypt. God had surprised his people with redemption back in the days of the Exodus, and he could do so again. So it's God's past faithfulness that motivates hope for the future. You look forward by looking backward, trusting in nothing other than God's character. It's like the poet of Psalm 39 who says, And now, O Lord, what else can I kavah for? You are my yachal. In the New Testament, the earliest followers of Jesus cultivated the similar habit of hope. They believed that Jesus' life, death, and resurrection was God's surprising response to our slavery to evil and death. The empty tomb opened up a new door of hope, and they used the Greek word elpis to describe this anticipation. The Apostle Peter said that Jesus' resurrection opened up a living hope, that people can be reborn, to become new and different kinds of humans. More than once, the Apostle Paul says the good news about Jesus announces the El Peace of glory. In both cases, this El Peace is based on a person, the risen Jesus, who has overcome death. And this hope wasn't just for humans. The Apostles believed that what happened to Jesus in the resurrection was a foretaste of what God had planned for the whole universe. In Paul's words, it's a hope that creation itself will be liberated from slavery to corruption into freedom when God's children are glorified. So Christian hope is bold, waiting for humanity and the whole universe to be rescued from evil and death. And some would say it's crazy, and maybe it is. But biblical hope isn't optimism based on the odds. It's a choice to wait for God to bring about a future that's as surprising as a crucified man rising from the dead. Christian hope looks back to the risen Jesus in order to look forward. And so we wait. That's what the biblical words for hope are all about.
Morning. Y'all doing well? That was good, wasn't it? It's like I could sit down now. Y'all know what hope is. That I, and you know what? I recommend the Bible Project. Bible Project, that's where that video came from. Uh, they've got great videos that give you fantastic overviews of all kinds of themes throughout the Bible, of every book of the Bible. You know, if you're going to sit down and read a book of the Bible or introduce yourself, I highly recommend getting their video and getting the intro to it first. It really helps understand what you're about to read. But we are going, we're in a season now. This is the first Sunday of Advent. How many are familiar with Advent? Advent, it, it, it means this. It means it's a, a arrival or coming. This is the season in which we are preparing for and re- remembering the coming of Christ, which means we're preparing for his coming again. How many know that because Jesus came the first time, he's coming again? Amen. Because he came the first time, he is coming again. And there are four Sundays in which we celebrate this theme. The Sundays are hope, peace, joy, and love. Hope, peace, joy joy, and love. And this is the first Sunday of Advent, the Sunday of hope. And if there is ever a time in which we need the message of hope, how many say it would be now? That's right. But interestingly, there has always been a need for hope in every generation. You see, the question isn't whether there is a need for hope. There is a question whether there is a people who will bring the message of hope. That's the question. There is always a need for hope. And see, what does that hope mean? It means waiting. It means actively waiting. I like that picture of that cord that is taut. Okay? It reminds me, that picture is the kid before Christmas, right? Actively waiting. That taut, you know, they're like, oh, I'm waiting, I'm waiting. They're not just sitting there going, oh, you know, it's coming tomorrow morning. I know, I just, it'll get around to it. How many have ever seen a kid wait like that? How many were like that when they were, oh, it'll happen. Or how many were getting up three and four times Christmas night, you know, looking forward to that? Yeah, come on, be truthful. You're going down and looking and seeing. All right, that's, that's the biblical picture of hope. Hope is that cord that's taught. That means we are actively waiting and looking for God to do something. Now, I would submit to you there are three components. The Bible con- con- condenses hope down to three components. Number one, God has acted faithfully and redemptively to keep his word in the past. He has already acted faithfully. He has already acted redemptively. He keeps his word. He has done that in the past. Number two, because of knowing that in the past, I can know and experience his faithfulness and his redemption right now. In a very real way, I'm not waiting for something in the future. I can enter in to what he has done into the past right now. But number three, I am trusting in his faithfulness to keep his word. Because there is a future he is going to bring about. I am trusting in that at this moment. These are the three components of hope. All right, so we're going to break this down and look at these. The first one, God has acted faithfully and redemptively to keep his word in the past. So I'm going to give two components to this this morning. There are so many ways we could look at this. I'm just going to break this into two components. Number one, you have every reason to trust your Bible. And number two, God has kept his word to provide redemption. Number one, you have every reason to trust your Bible. And number two, God has provided redemption through his word. He's kept his promise to do so. All right. So uh, this is just a brief overview. Um, now, this is, a, this is also a commercial. 
I'm going to invite you to come to Connect Group after service where we get to look at these things in more in depth. You can ask your questions. We can take this apart and we can have a lot more fun with it. So come on over to a Connect Group afterwards to dive down. I'm just going to give you an introduction to this right now. The Bible. It was written over a period of 1,500 years. It was written by more than 40 authors from all walks of life. Kings, military leaders, peasants, philosophers, fishermen, tax collectors, poets, musicians, statesmen, scholars, shepherds. It was written in different places. It was written in different times. It was in the wilderness, in a dungeon, on a hillside, in a palace, behind prison walls, while traveling, in exile on an island, uh, in times of war, times of peace, times of prosperity, times of need. There are different moods to the scripture. It was written on three different continents. There were the heights of joy, the depths of despair. There were times of certainty and conviction. There were times of confusion and doubt. It was written in Asia, in Africa, in Europe. Europe. It was written in three languages, Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. It's written in all different literary styles. It has poetry. It has historical narrative. There are songs. There's romance. There's didactic treatise. There's personal correspondence. There's memoirs. There's satire. There's biography and autobiography. There's law. There's prophecy. There's parable. There's allegory. And it addresses dozens of controversial subjects with unity. Think about that for a moment. All of that diversity, all of that complexity, addressing dozens of subjects with perfect unity. Not uniformity, unity. One consistent message from the beginning. In all of its diversity, it presents a single unfolding story, God's redemption of human beings. One story among all of that. It singularly and uniquely points to the one true living God as revealed through the person, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I, because we have read our Bibles, opened our Bibles, heard about the Bible, seen the Bible so much, I think we fail to realize how absolutely amazing that is. And here's my challenge. I would challenge you to find me three people, same background, same education, same everything you want to make, to have them sit down and write a work where they have 100% complete agreement and unity on everything beginning to end. That is God literally putting his fingerprint on his word. We can trust our Bibles. There's a whole lot more to it. And again, come on over and we'll, we'll talk more about it. But I'm just giving you a taste right there. And, but here's, here's the thing. What does that Bible tell us? That Bible tells us God has been faithful to keep his word and to provide redemption. From the very beginning, God created man. He created you. He created me. He created humanity to be in a love relationship with him. To be in a love relationship with each other and to be in a love relationship with him. And from the very beginning, over and over and over, we have chosen to follow the supernatural rebellion of the devil into sin and be exiled from God. It's over and over. It's on, you, the stories are there, one after the other. And what does the story tell us over and over and over again? God in his love, God in his mercy, God in his grace, repeatedly promised and provides redemption for his people back to him. Sometimes there's judgment. Sometimes there's exile. Sometimes there's situation, but there's always redemption. Over and over again, through Noah, through Abraham, through Joseph, through Moses, through David, and ultimately through the Lord Jesus Christ. And there are conservatively uh, 2,000 prophecies in the scriptures uh, that have been fulfilled. 
conservatively. And what's interesting about that is God actually challenges the gods of this world with that. How many knew this? How many know that God challenges the gods of this world with his prophecy? Here it is. We'll, show it. we'll look at it right here. Look, well, look that way, not that way. It's Isaiah 41. This is the Lord speaking. Set your case, says the Lord. Provide your proofs, says the king of Jacob. Let them bring them. Tell us what is to happen. Tell us the former things. What are they? That, that we may consider them. That we may know their outcome. Declare to us the things to come. Tell us what is to come hereafter. That we may know that you are gods. Do good. Do harm. Do something supernatural. Prove who you are, gods of this world. That we may be dismayed and terrified. Behold, you are nothing, and your work is less than nothing. An abomination is he who chooses you. God literally laid down the gauntlet. He outright challenges all others who would be deity to do the same thing. He says, all right, if you're a God, perfect. Predict the future. Not only that, reveal things that have been passed. Not only that, do something supernatural. Not only that, let us marvel at what you've done. And then he outright proclaims the other gods are nothing. But does God live up to his own challenge? If you look at the writings of Buddha, Confucius, Lao Tse, the Quran, you pick, pick them out. There's not... One example of predictive prophecy. There is one in the Quran. Muhammad said he would return to Mecca. Contrast that to Jesus saying, I will come back from the dead. It's really quiet. Yeah. Here's a partial list. There are 300 prophetic utterances concerning Jesus. At least 300. Some will say as high as 500. Concerning him being fulfilled in the, that are fulfilled in the New Testament. I'm just going to give you a few. This is just a few right here. Are you ready? Micah talks about his pre-existence. Psalms talks about him being the son of God. In Genesis, he's the seed of Abraham. In Genesis, he's the son of Isaac. In Numbers, he's the son of Jacob. In Genesis, he's the tribe of Judah. In Isaiah, he's the, of the family line of Jesse. In Jeremiah, he's of the house of David, which is really interesting because at that point, the genealogy stops. And when you get to uh, the New Testament, you have two genealogies. Isn't that fascinating? Anyway, in Genesis, he's the seed of a woman. In Isaiah, he's born of a virgin. In Micah, he's born in Bethlehem. In Psalms, he's presented with gifts. In Jeremiah, Herod kills children. In Isaiah, in Psalms, there's a special anointing of the Holy Spirit. In Isaiah, he's preceded by a messenger. In Isaiah, he begins a ministry in Galilee. In Isaiah, there are, he's a ministry of miracles. In Psalms, he's a teacher of parables. In Zechariah, he enters Jerusalem on a donkey. In Psalms, he's betrayed by a friend. In Zechariah, he's forsaken by his disciples. In Psalms, he's accused by false witnesses. And Isaiah, he goes silent before his accusers. And Isaiah and Zechariah, he's wounded and bruised. And Isaiah and Micah, he's smitten and spit upon. In Psalms, he's mocked. In Isaiah and Psalms, he's rejected by his own people. In Psalms and Zechariah, his hands and feet are pierced. In Isaiah, he's crucified with thieves. In Psalms, his bones are not broken. In Zechariah, his side is pierced. In Psalms, his garments are parted and lots are cast. In Isaiah, he intercedes for his persecutors. In Amos, darkness over the land. In Isaiah, he's buried in a rich man's tomb. In Psalms, there's the resurrection from the dead. In the Psalms, there's the ascension. In the Psalms, he's a stumbling stone to the Jews. And in Isaiah, he's a light to the Gentiles. I just told you the whole gospel, and I just quoted it from you from the Old Testament. He's clear and unambiguous. 
He's provided redemption that he has promised. We can trust. Step number one of hope. We can trust that he is a God of redemption. He's promised that he will do it and he has done it. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and he has transferred us to the kingdom of the son of his love in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And this redemption in Christ has changed the world. It has changed the world. What has Jesus taught us? In Rome, they they celebrated the slaughter of a million Gauls and the enslavement of a million more. That's what the Romans did. What do we say? That's evil. They threw their babies in the dump heap. What did the Christians do? Go take them and, and raise them as their own children. They cheered the gladiators fighting to death. What did the monk do? Go in the middle and take the, take the spear himself. Husbands are to be respected and honored. Wives are to be cherished and loved. Children are to be given full dignity of their humanity. There is no class in society better than, than another. God is no respecter of persons. All humans are created equal in the eyes of God and to be given the value as created in his image. You do not leave your enemy on the b- battlefield dying of his wounds, but you tend to every life. You know, I mean, you know the, the story of St. Francis of Assisi in the middle of all the battles and wars would go out and, and, and seek to heal. Whoever was injured. You feed the hungry, you clothe the poor, you heal the sick, you welcome the stranger, you visit those in prison, you share those in need. The, the skeptical historian, William Edward Hartpole Leckie, W.E.H. Leckie, skeptical historian, wrote this. The simple record of three short years of active life has done more to regenerate and to soften mankind than all of the disquisitions of philosophers and all the exhortations of moralists. He not only prophesied, not Jesus not only came, but he has literally changed the world. This is the hope we're trusting in. Our hope is not based on a vague spiritual experience or a man-made religion with a God of the gaps. Our hope is based on a God who actively redeems us in the past in real time, space, history. The God of history acting in history. So the number one thing to hope is that we can trust that God has acted redemptively in the past. Number two, I can know and experience his faithfulness and redemption right now. You and I can know it right now. So there are three components to knowing and experiencing God's uh, God in the present. I keep coming up with three. There's nothing magical about it. I probably could have come up with five. It's just, just. To know God in the present is based on reality, not certainty. And that is really important to get. But it's based on objective reality and subjective reality. To know God in the present. We're going to talk, what does all that mean? How, how do we, what, what, are you, what are you trying to tell me? I'm like really confused. I'll get there. Just stick with me. Why am I saying this? Because a relationship with God is based on a real relationship. He wants to have a real relationship with you. Relationships are not based on certainty. They're based on love. Now, what do I mean that when I say not based on certainty? In our culture, this is what we pretend. We pretend that we live our lives based on a quote-unquote scientific knowledge of certainty. Right? Everything is about scientific knowledge. Well, if I, I mean, I've literally heard it. I've heard people say, if you can't prove it with science, you can't prove it. The problem with that statement is you can't prove that statement with science. 
it fails its own test. There are more than one way by which we know something, and this is the important thing. For instance, how many know there is real meaning and purpose in life? There is real meaning and purpose. The thing about science is it presupposes there is real meaning and purpose. It doesn't prove it. It can't, it doesn't access it. You can't use the principle of the science to get the meaning and purpose. You have to believe there's meaning and purpose to even do science. Otherwise, what's the point? Why am I doing it? Well, here's the point. The point is, is that we know things in different ways. But when it comes to God, what do we want to do? We want the certainty principle. Well, how many, if you want to use science, let's use science for a minute. There's only one field in science, only one field in science that's actually based on proofs. Mathematics, very good. You've heard me say it before, right? <laughs> it was my wife. Mathematics, that's exactly right. The only field in science is actually based on proof. Everything else is based off of that. But that's not how we know things. Somebody be like, what do you mean? What do you mean? Okay, I'll give you some examples. How do we judge civil disputes? It's called the preponderance of, of evidence. The preponderance of evidence is how we judge civil disputes. We have billion-dollar settlements based on the preponderance of evidence has nothing to do with certainty. Zero. How do we send people off for life into prison and sometimes give them the death penalty beyond a reasonable doubt. Certainty is not in the principle. We never use certainty for that. We don't think about these things. We don't live our lives in certainty. I, what do I mean by that? Let me give you another example. I know for a fact right now, when I go outside, I know my car is going to start. Now, is it possible my car is not going to start? Especially after standing up here in front of everybody and saying my car's in. So, do I? Yes, it's possible. So there isn't certainty, but I don't live my life worrying, is my car not going to start? Okay, now where does this apply most? It applies in relationship. I love my wife. I know my wife loves me. I am not certain and neither is she. Does that make the love any less real? No, it makes it more real because there's choice involved. There's choice involved. It means it's an act of the will. If you want to understand how to know God, you got to know that he is love, that he loves you, and he desires that you love him back. That is number one. And it's not based on a certainty principle. It's based on a love principle. It's the same way with our kids. We, we, you know, our kids come into this world and we want to pour everything into them. We desire that relationship. We desire to love them. But we have no guarantee they will love us back. There isn't certainty. It doesn't make it any less real. It makes it more real. God's love is real. And here's the thing. Now, just because there's not certainty doesn't mean we can't know it objectively. God's love is real and we know it both objectively and subjectively. What do I mean we know it objectively? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. The fact is Jesus is a real person in history. There's no scholar who actually studies this as an area of specialty, skeptical or otherwise, who denies that Jesus exists, who denies that Jesus died on the cross. It is universally accepted across scholarship no matter what school they come from. Jesus 
lived on this earth and Jesus died. And we have his words that says, I'm not dying for you because of how bad you are. I'm dying for you because I love you. I love you. Our sins separate us from him. It's his love that returns us to him. I can objectively know that Jesus died on the cross. I can objectively know that he loves me. I can objectively know that he rose from the dead. I would, I'm going to challenge you to this. There are fantastic studies on this. Check out Gary Habermas. Check out, uh, um, oh man, his his name just left, William Lane Craig. Two, two scholars that have done immense studies. I can, I can lay out, and we don't have time this morning, but come over to Connect Group. Here's commercial number two, you know. And wait, there's more. Commercial number two. Come over to Connect Group and we'll go through them. Four fundamental basic uh, uh, um, understandings of the resurrection that there is no other good answer for other than the resurrection. Well, it was a hallucination. Not a good answer. Well, it was just legend. Not a good answer. Well, they just made it up. Not a good answer. Well, he didn't really die. Already proved that one wrong. There's only one objective fact. Jesus rose from the dead. We can know objectively the reality of Christ. He lived. He lived a sinless, spotless life. He loved you. He loves me. He gave his life for us and he has risen from the dead. But we can also know it subjectively. It's not just good enough for it to be a creed that we have in here. It's a relationship God desires. He died because he wants that love between you and I. And here's the thing, it's not up to me to reveal God. He will reveal himself to anyone who seeks him with all their heart. Uh, this is, I'm not giving an excuse here. I'm going to give examples of what I'm talking about. I'm not trying to back out, but I'm saying this. It's subjective. In other words, this is what Jeremiah said. How many know the scripture in Jeremiah? I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans uh, uh, for welfare and not of evil to give you a future and a hope. I know the thoughts that I think for you, towards you, says Jeremiah. Thoughts of good and not of evil to give you a future, to give you hope. Jeremiah says this. I may know that scripture. A lot of you'll see it on people's refrigerators and their mirrors. We all love that scripture. But two verses later, it says this. This is what it says. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. What God desires between you and I is not that we live a sinless, perfect life. What he desires is our heart. He wants a heart relationship of love with you just like he has with you. He wants you to desire him the same way he desires you. Look, that seems strange. Really? What do you think happens with marriage? Two people, they see one another. They have become attracted to one another. And inside, what is it they desire? They desire that other person's heart. That's what they want. And they start to do things and act in ways. Hey, I'm over here. Notice me. Look at me. Wouldn't this be good for us to be together? That's what God desires. He is love. And he desires us to live in love with him, to become that love, and to be that love in this world. And that comes from our heart. If you want to know God, you've got to have a heart that says, I want to know you. And when you have that heart, he will reveal himself to you. I had a a friend. Many of you know this story, so I'll keep it brief. 
I had a guy, a coworker I was working with. We worked in construction together. And we were working in people's houses. And every day we'd have the I believe conversation. I believe this. And he'd say, I believe this. And I would say, I believe this. And one day it hit me. What does it matter what I believe? What I believe is doesn't matter. The only thing that matters is what is real. That's all that matters. Is what is real. And, I, and so I stopped saying I believe. I started, I started making declaratory statements. And finally he said to me one day, how can you be so sure? How can you really know? In spite of all the objective reasons I've given and I've shown him, how can you be known? And I said, do you really, really want to know? He said, yes. I said, then get down on your knees with me right here and sincerely ask God from your heart. C.S. Lewis lived as, uh, as an atheist most of his life. He, he, in his book, um, Pilgrim's Regress, he describes the regressive journey he went through looking and trying all other kinds of things. And he tells elsewhere, uh, when he writes down, surprised by joy, the morning that he, he the, the evening, he finally realized, I cannot deny the objective reality of God. Now I have to submit. And he knelt down on one knee. He said, the most reluctant convert in all the world. <laughs> I don't want to admit this, but I have to acknowledge you are real. And it was from that point God began to subjectively reveal himself to him. So this friend of mine, we knelt down right there. He said, yes, I'll do it. We knelt down three months. The next day, the most interesting part of this story to me is that we were on a job site together every day for like two or three months. The next day after he prayed, we didn't see each other for three months. Three months later, he came back to me and he said, God is real. God is alive. I remember the day I was racked in guilt as I desired to have a relationship with God. And I'm thinking about all the people I've hurt. And it was racking me with so much guilt. I, I, all I could picture were the, 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 the dozens of individuals I had hurt in my life. Things I'd said. Things I had done. And I'm up. I'm late. There's nobody around. And I'm praying. And I'm praying, Lord, is it possible that you could forgive me? How in the world can you forgive this? How is that even possible? In the back of my mind, I kept having this thought, Psalm 32, Psalm 32, Psalm 32, Psalm 32. And I kept putting it out of my mind. I didn't know what Psalm 32 said. I had no idea what Psalm 32 said. I had never read it before. I was a brand new in my faith in walking with him. And finally, I had a thought. Hang on one second. I'm supposed to have done this beforehand. Turn to Psalm 32 if you want to find out the... Finally, I had a thought. What would it hurt to actually turn to Psalm 32? And I thought to myself, I, I guess it wouldn't hurt anything. And I opened up my Bible. I turned to Psalm 32 and he said, How blessed is the one whose rebellious acts are forgiven, whose sin is pardoned, how blessed is the one whose wrongdoing the Lord does not punish. And I'm telling you, I dropped my Bible right there, fell to my knees, and just started weeping. God could not have spoke to me any more clear if he had said it out loud. God desires to reveal himself to you. I don't know how he's going to reveal himself to you. I do know this. We don't go to God first. He comes to us first. 
We don't go to God first. He comes to us first. But God's demonstrated his love for us. And yet, while we were sinners, Christ died for us. And so I would submit to you, if you're going about your day, and you're thinking about your day, and all of a sudden you're flooded with thoughts about God, I would submit to you that that's more than likely the Holy Spirit calling you, not you just thinking about him. Now look, I'm not saying the subjective revealing is going to be about feelings. I'm not saying get a feeling. Okay, what I'm saying is, is that God wants to meet you right where you are. I don't know where you are, but if you bring all of your heart where you are to him, he will reveal himself. All I know is that we are called to seek him. And then he will reveal himself. So, I can know the hope right now, the faithfulness of God right now in the present God, God has acted in the past to redeem us. God has revealed himself in the present. Huh. And I can trust in his faithfulness to keep his word in the future. Because of these three components of hope, because God has faithfully kept his word, because I can know the faithfulness of God now, I trust the faithfulness of God for the future. Peter says this. Peter is writing and he says, this is Second Peter. He says, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. We didn't make it up when we're telling you Jesus is coming back. We actually saw his power. He actually took us up on top of the mountains and we saw him. We actually saw it. We saw him light up and, and that is how he is returning. It's not a story. It's not a myth. I'm telling you, Peter says. Check it. Let, read the, see, this, this is the way we read the scripture. We read the scripture like this. For Peter says, we did not follow cleverly devised myths. And we make the scripture as though somehow it's this holy thing over here that we don't relate to the fact that it's a real person who really experienced this, who's trying to tell us something. Here it is in Acts. When he, said the, when he had said these things, Jesus had said some things to them. As they were looking at him, as they were watching him, they're watching Jesus. He's already resurrected from the dead. He was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes. And they said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way you saw him go to heaven. It's not a spiritual thing. There is a future in which Jesus is returning. Here Peter says it a different way. This is in chapter 3. But according to his promise, we are waiting. I'm sorry. Yeah, this is it. We are waiting for new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells. Jesus is going to make all things complete. He is returning. He is coming. In verse 9 it says this. Here's the thing. A lot of us go, well, it's 2,000 years. Shouldn't he have come by now? What's he say? Peter talks about that. He's not slowing to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. God is coming because he has a heart relationship that he wants to fulfill between you and I. He is returning. That is going to happen. But he desires that not what one should perish. But that means something to us. That means something to us. What does Peter say? 
He says, since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? Waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God. That word waiting for, that word waiting for, that is the word for hope. And that's what this is all about. Because God has acted faithfully to keep his word, to bring his redemption, because we can experience it now and come into a real relationship with him now, he has called us not only to hope for him coming, but to live in a way today that brings his coming. What are we doing? To live in that tension. To live like that excited child who says, Jesus loves you. Do you know that? He is coming back and we are all going to stand before him to face the evils of this world and to turn them into his goodness. That's what the cross says. Where are the hungry? Are you feeding the hungry? Where are the sick? Are you healing the sick? Where are the poor? Are you helping the poor? Where are those in need? Are you sharing with those in need? Where are they in prison? Are you visiting those in prison? The same thing that believers have been doing for the last 2,000 years that changed this world is the same thing you and I are called to if we actually have this thing called hope in our lives and believe he's going to return. It's not a waiting that we sit here and go, oh, Jesus, this world needs you. you got to hurry up and come back. It's this world needs you, Lord. How can I be your vessel of hope in it? Listen to his words. Because of these three components of biblical hope, because God has faithfully kept his word, because we faithfully know the faithfulness of Christ now, Lorena, because we can trust the coming faithfulness of Christ for the future, we become a living hope. A living hope. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. If we understand the living hope that we are, then we're not living for now. We're living for him in the now. Did you catch the difference? We're not living for now. We're living for him in the now. Or do you not believe the hope that he has given you is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading? We know that if, we are, that, if we, that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, if this earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord, for we walk by faith and not by sight. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. Look, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. But while I'm in the body, I live by faith in that his presence is in me. And if my presence is in me, I want to live in a way that pleases him. For why? For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Paul's not talking to unbelievers there, by the way. He's not talking to unbelievers. 
All of this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. If you have hope, you are called. If you are called, you have a ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ Jesus, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. Make God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Jesus came into the world, and Jesus is coming to the world. This is the first Sunday in which we celebrate that. And the first aspect of that is hope. And that is a hope because who God is and what he's done, and what he has done and desires to do in your life now, and what he desires to do through your life. The point of salvation is not to enter into salvation. The point of salvation is to take you fully into the salvation of others. Until he returns. The third aspect is to know that because he has done it. Because he is doing it. He will do it. Amen. Amen.